You can be seated. Thank you, Michael. Sorry about that. That was my fault. I put those slides together and forgot that song yesterday. So, but you handled that great. Brian, thank you for your words and your heartfelt. Um, just, we could hear your heart and all that, your response to what all you've been through. Appreciate that very much. Beautiful what you just said. Well, I, gotta, I guess I want to show a hands for this. I'm sure I'll have some people in here remember this. Who in here remembers this? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. B-A, start. Yes, the Konami codes. I got some people in here that, oh, man, you guys are my people. This is the original code from the Nintendo Entertainment System called the Konami code. It was specifically, I discovered it in a game called Contra, which was a difficult little game from my childhood. Usually I could only get past about level three, maybe level four, and then I would run out of lives. You got three lives to start with, and then you got three continues, so nine lives. You were like a cat. But then I had a friend in around third, fourth grade whose mom and dad gave him for Christmas a subscription to Nintendo Power Magazine. This was my buddy, because he had all the insight. My parents would not give me such a gift. They gave me a lump of coal and a kick to the head with a steel-toed boot every year for Christmas. Not really. But uh, they told me, nope, you can't get it. But my buddy discovered in Nintendo Power Magazine the way to finally get past this game, Contra. Right as the screen came up, you typed in this code on your little, on your little, uh, with your little thumbs on the little gamepad, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, and if you had a friend, select start, because you had two players, and instead of starting with three lives, you started with 30. Now Contra was easy. I could get past it so fast, I could, I could dink around in there and lose 15 lives if I wanted to, and I would still beat the game. Such a great way. I still try it on my kid's PlayStation every once in a while, playing Anderson's PS5, and if I can't get past something he's playing, I'll put in up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, <laughs> BA, select, start, see if it works. Because we all like a code, don't we? Now, we all love a good code. And while we may not admit it, even though Brian was actually just talking about this in some way, most of us, when we come to our relationship with God, are looking for some kind of code, a way to get past, a way to get the easy life, a way to try to solve it. So we have this idea that works in the back of our minds, that if I just do the right things, if I show up, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I go to church, if I check all the right boxes, if I study God's Word a little bit, Maybe I'll find this secret code. Maybe I'll get the extra blessing. Maybe I'll get God to answer the prayers if I could just find the right words. Now we know conventional wisdom tells us, if you've lived any kind of life, that life and even, yes, scripture doesn't work like a secret code. It's an unfortunate truth, but it is a truth. Even though that's actually taught in what Brian talked about, prosperity gospel, if I just give this amount of money, or if I just buy this book, if I just say these words the right way, then there'll be a secret blessing that can I get all I've ever wanted. But the truth is, there is no up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right in life. 
God is in heaven, church family, waiting for us to input a code. In fact, I would say with an eye on heaven and a foot in this world, living in the in-between in the already but not yet kingdom of God, what God has for us is even better because God has not given you a code. What we're going to discover today is he's given each of us a calling. Not a code, but a calling. And so we're in chapter 16 of the story. The middle part, the part that's probably the hardest to read as you go through this abridged version of Scripture. It's messy. It's hard to keep up with all the names. But in this story, right in the middle, in difficulty not only in reading, we find ourselves in difficulty in the people of God. It's a place where the people of God have gone astray. So we not only struggle with believing what is going on, we struggle with understanding it. So let's set the stage a little bit so we can all get on the same page. The nation right now of Israel that was once united has now been divided for 208 years. 200, 209 years, eight or nine, however you count it. They've been divided between the northern kingdom Israel and the ten tribes to the north and the two tribes in the south, the kingdom of Judah. This divided kingdom has been there for two centuries. And during that 208 years, 38 different kings have ruled over Judah and Israel. Only five of those 38 have been kings that have matched their love for God like King David did. 38 total, only five with hearts for God. 33 of them have turned their hearts away from the Lord. So you have 208 Years where 33 of those kings have done what is not the will of God. In response to this, our last number on the screen, God has sent during this time, and there'll be more to come, but during this time, He has sent nine prophets. Nine prophets who our, uh, our kids define so well. Nine prophets whose job it is to warn and correct and speak as a mouthpiece or a bullhorn on behalf of God. I know I keep saying this, but let's remind ourselves, a prophet is not a fortune teller. A prophet is a herald, somebody who brings truth on behalf of God. So therefore, a false prophet is someone who doesn't bring God's truth. And the herald or the prophet or their message is always, if you continue this way, It could go bad. But if you walk in step with God, he will be with you. But of course, during this 208 years and the 38 kings and the nine prophets, the people for the most part have not listened. We are at a part in the story where it is devastating. It is depressing. It is a hard place for the people of God. 2 Chronicles 36 sums it up so well what this part of the story is about. In verse 15 and 16, the writer says, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and the wor- sent word to them through their messengers, through his messengers again and again. Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And there was no 
remedy. What this passage just said was that God in his patience and in his love for 200 years plus has now sent warning and sermon and word and the people have not listened. And after 200 years, God has had enough. Though he loves and he protects and he's going to leave a remnant in his compassion, he has finally reached the point of something has to change. The full extent of the circumstances of their idolatry will be seen. And so in the course of time, the northern tribe of Israel is destroyed. The Assyrian Empire to the north, and this is all not just biblically uh, correct, this is historically correct as well. The northern tribe is destroyed by this empire, one of the world's first since Egypt, who is having their way with the world. They've come and they've destroyed Samaria and the cities to the north and all of the ten tribes of Israel. They've captured them and they've scattered them into exile. And this happens for our story today where we're going to be centered on Judah in the south in full view of Judah and Jerusalem. This happens in their front yard, looking out their front porch across the street. They have seen all this destruction happens. I'll show it to you here on the map. What you see is a group of people, of course, what you see in the blue is the northern tribes and the yellow, kind of orangish, darker yellow, is Judah. Well, at the time, what's happened, if you can follow my laser, is Assyria has come down from the north. They've taken all of this. But for Jerusalem and Judah, Assyria has come down and they've even destroyed this little city of Lachish and come around into Beersheba and have all this area of the Philistia and Arabian, Arabian tribes all covered as well. So what is going on in Judah in our story is a time of anxiety, of fear, of uneasiness. Because to the north and to the south and back to the west, you're surrounded by Assyrians. To the east is your only escape, and it's dry desert. What we're told in text is 180,000 troops led by one of the nastiest men to ever live, King Sennacherib of the Assyrians. It's camped out, and they're ready to besiege, and they're ready to destroy, and they're ready to take over Judah and Jerusalem as they did Israel and the tribes to the north. So what we have in the text as we set the stage is a question before Judah. It's the big question of, will you go the way of your neighbors and your brothers and sisters to the north? Or will they experience what we're going to call a breakthrough? We're going to pick it up during the reign of King Hezekiah, one of the five good kings. One of the kings who had it in his heart to say, let's get things right with God. He was courageous. He was strong. He begins his reign at the young age of 25, and he removes idols within the first month. He tears down high places, and he starts a revival. The doors of the temple had been closed. There had not been Passover in years, and he says, we're getting back to partying like God wants us to party, and they start a Passover. His heart belongs to God. And in facing this threat of Assyria, we pick it up, in 2 Chronicles 32, 
Listen to his words. He says to the people, at this time of anxiety, this time of fear, this time where you're surrounded by what seems like an impenetrable wall of Assyrians on all sides except one, he says to them, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Now that's a speech, right? We will not go quietly into the night, right? (laughs) They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. You know, he sounds kind of like William Wallace here. But really, if you're paying attention to the story, who's he sound like? He sounds like Moses. He sounds like Joshua. He sounds like those faithful leaders before who said, we do not rely on our own strength, but we rely on the arm of the Lord. Now, what's interesting in the story is this is one of those rare occasions in which you get a response, not from the people, but we actually have a written response from Sennacherib. Because Sennacherib doesn't just say, well, they're trusting in God, let's go home. Sennacherib has conquered most of the known world. And he's not going to be intimidated, nor his soldiers. So here's a response that we have in 2 Chronicles 13 through 15, where Sennacherib, through his general, says back to Hezekiah, Somehow he got word of Hezekiah's speech. Maybe it was so inspirational like Tim Tebow. They made it into a little, you know, remember Tim Tebow's speech? Like, we lost, we're never losing again. And they put it up in Florida's uh, locker room. This is a Tim Tebow speech, right? Uh, (laughs) That's a Tebow move, right? And and now, in light of this, Sennacherib goes, I got a little trash talk for you. And here's what Sennacherib says. Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of all the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations and that that my predecessors destroyed have been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now, do not let Hezekiah deceive you He's talking to the people of of Judah and mislead you like this. Do not believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has ever been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Some good trash talk. A serious ruler basically says, bring it. You calling me an arm of flesh? I'll show you. Nobody else has been able to stop us. Baal, God of the Canaanites. Marduk, God of the Philistines. We've conquered them. It's no problem. You, Judah, will be just like any any other. Assyria not only challenges the people of Judah, you need to notice here that they challenge God himself. He says, you think Yahweh is any different than these others? What makes your God think that you can stop us? I think it's summed up in this idea of not even God. It's this lie that the enemy tells 
about what God can do and cannot do. And the enemy here, Sennacherib and the Assyrian, is taking on, through imagery, the same idea of the big enemy, capital E, in all of Scripture, the Satan. And I think at this point it's good for us to think about this phrase, not even God. Because on one side you have Hezekiah saying, God can deliver, and then on the other you have Sennacherib saying, Nobody's stopped us yet. Look at all the evidence. And how many of us feel like we have an army encamped right outside our door right now? How many of us have heard that whisper in our ears of fear? That whisper that makes us worried and afraid the thing that gets that little bit of doubt in our life, thinking that there's nothing, not even God, could come and help us in the face of the enemy or situation or circumstance. How many of us hear that, that it's too broken to fix, too scary to face, too big to overcome? So he listens to words like, not even God can... Heal your marriage. Not even God would forgive that kind of sin. Not even God could spark your heart for Him again. You're too stuck, you're too far gone. And then, often in terms of this, we hear these words, and then we get stuck and we say, what can we really do? I want us to see Hezekiah's response. Look at what he does in response. Because as this trash talk comes down, it's not that Hezekiah has some code or he's got 10 steps to a better Hezekiah in his, on his bookshelf and he figures it out. Here's what Hezekiah does. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. I love this response. They go when walled in and needing a breakthrough, they go where they only can go. The only place you can go when you are stuck. They cry out, they hit their knees, they ask God, what do we do? What's going to happen? God, can you overcome this? I hope you hear the, and see the desperation in what they do. It's desperate, but it's exactly what they need, and it's a lesson for us. Church, I don't know what it's going to take for the American church to get desperate again. Will we wait until we're destitute, or will we raise our voices to God again? We are closing in the churches of Christ six buildings a month. And that's not enough to make us desperate. You think about that. Hezekiah goes exactly where he needs to go. Why is it that our last option seems to be prayer when it should be our first? It's not a code. It's Hezekiah living out his calling. In the next verse, I love how Scripture does this over and over, and you'll pick up on it. 
Next verse. Then the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the, king, in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. I love how in scripture, anytime there's a big battle between God of Israel, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim, it's over in like a verse. And anybody else is like, boom, it's over. Book of Revelation does that too. There was a fight and it was over, right? When God is involved, all there is is an end. No fight, no battle, no war. God just simply takes care of it. When God is near, he makes all the difference. God is with us, Scripture says, who then can be against. Others might say or might even say, not even God can help us now. What Scripture says is only God can help us now. And that's what Hezekiah is leaning into. Hezekiah and Isaiah witness a breakthrough. They wake up the next day and Assyria is breaking camp. Whoever's left... The wall of this Assyrian power is torn down, not by power, not by military might, not by threat of the arm of of Judah, but by the power of God. Which I think brings us to what I wanted you to hear. I wanted to work for 20 minutes to get us to this point, and that is this. What we learn in the middle of the story from Hezekiah is this beautiful, beautiful lesson, and that is our growth in leadership, and put any word you want in there. Scratch out leadership, our growth as a husband, our growth as a wife, our growth as a parent, our growth as a coworker, as a teacher, as a high school student, as a middle school student. Our growth as followers of Jesus is completely dependent on our growth in his lordship. Not a code, but a calling. A calling that we sung about right before communion. I have surrendered all. I'm growing not in my ability, I'm growing in his ability. I'm not growing in what I can accomplish, I'm growing in what I sacrifice so that God can be seen in me. That's what Hezekiah does. What made Hezekiah one of the good kings is he grew in leadership because he was growing in his lordship. And again, I don't talk about leadership in terms of titles and who stands up here with a microphone, we're obsessed with that, who has roles and responsibilities. I'm talking to all of us. I think Scripture's speaking to all of us. How you're determined to be led will determine how you lead. So let's dig a little deeper here, just really fast. Because I don't want to just leave you with this big point. I want to look at Hezekiah's life really fast and see what caused this kind of heart in him. Because two things really stand out. And again, it wasn't a secret code. Hezekiah didn't have your best life now, Hezekiah, as a king of Judah. (laughs) He didn't have that somewhere. He He wasn't just following some steps. What he was doing was following the Lord. So I've already said this in some way, but let's say it again. The first thing that stands out about Hezekiah that that needs to challenge us is Hezekiah didn't lead He was led. The first move of a besieged king was not to puff up his chest, it was to cry out and get on his knees and pray. He joins Isaiah, this pretty popular, well-known prophet in prayer. And the question that, as I was reading this this week, is I thought, Jake, what, what number 
would you put on if somebody asked you, what step is it to when you finally get there? You know, I'm facing something, you're facing something, and I'm going to try to get past this circumstance or figure out this circumstance or there's a situation that I need help with. What step do I finally go, God, help me? Is it step one? I struggled to say yes to that. I usually like to exhaust all my ignorance first. <laughs> Amen? And I say ignorance on purpose because usually I'm just going to be beating my head against a wall. Amen? So what number, what step would you put? Is it three? Is it six? Is it ten? Whatever it is. What would change about us as a church? What kind of breakthroughs could we experience as a church if prayer became step one? Not that we're here and say, we've got it figured out. We want to lead. We want to lead Canadian. We want to lead Wheeler and Perryton and Miami back to the Lord. We've got it figured out. No, we want to be led so that we can allow others to see Jesus in us. Because when I'm leading, I usually just do this to Jesus, right? I'm not here to lead. I'm here to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi and our Savior. And second, one more quick point is I think there's truth in this that we need to hear, and this is going to be stepping on some toes, mine included, is that Hezekiah wasn't inspired. He was dedicated. Let me pick on that for just a second, but first a little bit of scripture. This is Hezekiah. Well, Chronicles says about uh, Hezekiah first. Second Chronicles 29. It says, In the first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. So it's closed. Like, <laughs> shuttered up, right? Uh, imagine having a temple that's the highlight, the centerpiece, and the high point of the whole town, and it's got an out-of-business banner out in front of it. It's shuttered up. He opens the doors and repairs them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord. All these Levites have been out of a job. They're just hanging around. Right? And he tells them, let's consecrate this. Remove all the defilement of the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. In fact, his dad had brought in idols into the sanctuary. They did evils in the, evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. I love this because it's right there at the first. If you notice the timeline, it's the first month of the first year. Hezekiah, this young 25-year-old king, as he shows dedication. He reopens the temple he doesn't wait. He does it immediately. He begins his rule with raising up other leaders. And he doesn't wait for other people to be inspired. He calls them to the same level of dedication. I also love that he has really, in the history of what he's seen in, as a child, he has no reason to start a revival. The temple's been closed. But his dedication overcomes his need for inspiration. Now here's where we step on some toes. 
I think we're obsessed with trying to be inspired in order to act. Right? Hope you get what I'm saying. How many of us are waiting on a spark of inspiration to change? Or an inspiration to take that next step? Or to share our faith? Or an inspiration to invite? Or an inspiration to confess? Or an inspiration so that we can get dedicated? I'm going to borrow from Francis Chan, so if you get mad at me, get mad at Francis Chan, you can send him an email, not me. He says this. He said this about church. Uh, I think this is one of his books. I can't remember which. He says, we show up to church and we think, am I going to like this? Or maybe we think, what am I going to get out of this? And that shows us every problem with the American church. Am I going to like it? Or what am I going to get out of this is not the question. Then he says, what we should be asking when we show up is how can I love God more? Because dedication overcomes inspiration. Now we ask those questions, why? Am I going to like this? Are they going to sing the songs I like? Jake's been there for 10 years. He's kind of boring. He kind of sounds like he did 10 years ago. Right? Get over it. Right? We're looking for inspiration, and I am too. But instead of us looking for inspiration, what if we started to ask God, increase our love, increase our dedication, increase our commitment? Then I believe we would find an overflow of inspiration. And that's what Hezekiah does. He's not there to lead, he's there to be led. And he's not there looking for inspiration. Then he'll become the king he's supposed to be. He first says, no, I'm going to be dedicated and then God will take care of the rest. That's a breakthrough. That's the breakthrough we all need. And so this morning, will there be a breakthrough in your life? Will there be a time of you saying, it's time for me to get back to the Lord Could there be this morning somebody here that goes, it's time for me to take that next step of faith in baptism. It's time for me to take that step in confession. It's time for me to take that step in asking for help because I feel the enemy all around me telling me that no one, not even God, can help you. But I want you to hear this morning this invite. I want you to hear this morning that what Scripture is calling you to is not that everything's going to be okay, as Brian was saying. The theology that Brian was giving you is spot on. It's spot on. We don't follow God because things are going to always work out. We follow God because he promises he will always be with us, even in valleys and at the mountaintop. Right? There will be dark valleys, but the Lord shows up. There will be mountaintops. And the Lord shows up. And there'll be anything in between. And the Lord shows up. And breakthrough happens when we realize that one truth. So whatever you need this morning, we're here for you. Man, we love y'all. This church loves you. I want to see so many people come to know Jesus. Don't you? 
I want to see in 2024, we filled up that back wall this last week. You guys turn around and look at that back wall. The three walls are full of baptism pictures. Those are all significant over the last five and a half years since this auditorium got remade of people who've had a breakthrough in their relationship with God. Because they said, I want Jesus. It's an incredible little deal. I would like in 2024 that we get so serious about hitting our knees and asking for breakthroughs in other people's lives that we have to fill up these three walls and those three sections of walls by the next, in the next 12 months. Amen? Now, well, that seems impossible. Really? <laughs> Not at all, right? Because God provides breakthrough. Not when we're inspired, but when we're dedicated. If you need anything today, we love you all and we're here for you. Let's stand together as Michael leads us in song. Salvation belongs to our God.